0: Go ahead and take
1: the speed up your number one now, runway like two seven third land, green dot. Welcome nice to guys, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name is Hal Bryan and I'm EAA's Managing Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications or Content and Publications. I'm so excited about my new title. Uh, With me at the uh, appropriate social distance at the far end of a long table, it is
2: Tom Charpentier,
1: Government Relations Director. All right. And uh, joining us uh, uh, remotely today is uh, a man named Jim Bork. Jim is the new president of the International Aerobatic Club. So that's EAA's division for people who like to get upside down. So, Jim, welcome to The Green Dot.
0: Hey, thank you, guys. Great to be here.
1: So, well, we're sure glad to have you, and congratulations on your recent election as president of IAC.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's a lifelong dream to be uh, involved at this level with an organization like the IAC. It goes back a long time, 50 years, and I've been involved with it for quite a while as well, so it's a real pleasure.
1: That's terrific. Well, speaking of, uh, of long times, let's, uh, let's start where we always like to start, and that's at the beginning. How did you first get involved in aviation? Were you an airplane kid? Did you come from an aviation family? Or what were those early memories like?
0: It's such a great question. I love asking people that as well, because we all get it from somewhere. In my case, it was my father. My dad was an airplane broker, and I grew up uh, picking up airplanes and delivering them with my father and going to air shows and uh, just sort of helping him, even as a young kid, to kind of make his business work. And I, I just grew up around it. I never knew a life without him. And in fact, when I became of age, I had kind of uh, – it took me a while to realize that not everyone had an airplane. You know, when I became 12, 13 years old, I started, hey, well, now, how do people get around? You know, because we just kind of went everywhere in an airplane.
2: Yeah, I think uh, – yeah, I mean, some people walk, but uh... – <laughs> Right. Right.
0: No the cool were, kids fly. Um, yeah. our, we would – if we had a trip that was about 50 or 60 miles, we'd go to the airport and fly in an airplane, just what our lifestyle was. It was a fantastic way to grow up, and I really enjoyed it. So, to me, it was just a big part of uh, of life. And um, then I had to take a break for a while because of money. It's an expensive thing to do, of course. But um, you know, now, of course, I'm back enjoying it.
1: So, uh, real quick, what kind of things were you uh, were you flying? Did you uh, d- did your family have a specific airplane, or were you always cruising around as your as your dad was moving airplanes as part of the business?
0: Yeah, the, the latter. My dad sold a lot of different types of airplanes. He was a, a prolific uh, seller of Cessna and Beechcraft um, uh, at one point. And then uh, formed his own company and sold lots of different airplanes from uh, uh, fighter jets to Satabrias uh, to Stinson's or um, a lot of aero commanders. He did a lot of work selling uh, twin-engine aero commanders and also Metroliners, some uh, smaller um, uh, airline jets as well. Uh, so you, know, you do that until probably... 10 years ago or so when he retired. So it was my whole life basically with him.
2: Well, it's a pretty diverse fleet.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really was. We went a lot of interesting places, went to Mexico quite a bit and all over the country, of course. And I, I think I had been to, I, at this point, I've been to 49 of the 50 states. I haven't been to Rhode Island. But by the time I was probably uh, 18 or so, I remember counting I'd been to 35 states, which was oh, you know, no. tremendous. Uh, and I really learned a lot from my dad about aviation and business in general and the joy of traveling and eating well. <laughs> I learned from my dad.
1: So if there's anybody out there listening from Rhode Island, please uh, send Jim yeah. an invite. He's waiting.
0: Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, I well, grew I've up next of, to uh, it. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, I've sort of uh, told everybody I'm just not going to go to Rhode Island. It's gotten to where I'm superstitious about it now, but probably I'll get up there at some point. <laughs>
2: Well, my girlfriend still believes that Delaware doesn't actually exist, so, uh, you know.
1: <laughs> I can think of an infinite number of corporations that would uh, that would disagree yeah. with that, but.
2: Uh, no, they're just part of the conspiracy, you know that, hell
1: Ah, uh, that's what they wanted me to think. Never okay, mind.
2: Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm dragging us way off track here, but um, uh-huh. yeah, so um, what, did, uh, what eventually got you into aerobatics? Uh, you know, obviously you had a exposure to a bunch of different airplanes, um, you know, you're working with air shows. Uh, did it kind of come out of that?
0: Well, it sort of did because I grew up around pilots. To me, everybody was a pilot. Everyone I looked up to was a pilot. And at that time in the 70s, there was a lot of uh, really great aviation going on. There was tons of aircraft, new aircraft being produced. There was a lot of people buying airplanes, a lot of fly-ins, a lot of pancake breakfasts, and a lot of air shows, especially small-town air shows. A lot of that's not around anymore. But at that time, we could go to an air show. It seemed like, or some kind of a flying event, it seemed like every week, every weekend. Sure. So we did a lot of that, and it was part of my dad's way of making social connections. So we did a lot of that kind of thing. And um, in particular, I remember going to the air show at Offutt Air Force Base. I grew up in in Omaha, and I have a very clear memory of the Blue Angels flying A-4s, which they did briefly. At that air show, I remember sitting on my dad's shoulders and watching that, and watching um, some other air show performers that are well-known now, you know, looking back on it, I was really um, very fortunate to see that show. A lot of great stuff going on there. But that really got me excited about the idea of flying an airplane in aerobatics. And then my dad had a Citabria for a while. We had, he had several different airplanes. The one I remember the most is um, a CASA, what they call a CASA jet, a Spanish fighter jet. Oh, sure, That yeah. we flew and did, did loops and rolls and things. And I was probably 16 or something. And, boy, that really, that really hit me. But then I, wow. I just didn't have very much money. And uh, I ended up working at a hobby store and getting into model airplanes. So I spent you know, a couple decades working very heavily in the model airplane industry, you still do, and uh, got involved in aerobatics and became really proficient at flying RC aerobatics. And at some point I just decided, you know, I have the money now, I could have a real airplane and do this stuff in a real airplane. Boy, I you know, modelers hate it when I call real airplanes, real airplanes. They are they're call it full scale, full scale. Yeah. <laughs> so I should say, I, I realized I could buy a full scale airplane and be inside the airplane. And that, after that, it's just been a, a you know, a dream, and I'm I'm very involved in it ever since then.
2: That's that's uh, that's awesome. And then, how did you uh, get involved with uh, with IEC? Uh, did you just start starting competition aerobatics and just kind of move up from
0: there? Well, you know, my first exposure to the IEC was when I lived in Dallas, and at that time, the IEC Nationals was in uh, basically Sherman, which is about 45 minutes or an hour north of where I lived. And my RC friends and I would always go up there to to kind of hang out and look at the airplanes and talk to the pilots. And we had them all on pedestals because we were model airplane guys, you know, it was uh, to me just so exciting to walk around and see these lasers and, and uh, Giles or some of the hot airplanes at the time. And then also the pits biplanes and all the cool airplanes that were out there. And the 90s was a, a time of a tremendous innovation in, uh, in aerobatic airplane design. A lot of the, the planes were flying really came out of that sort of era, the late 80s and early 90s, when a lot of uh, um, design changes were made and, and we all, all went to monoplanes was one of the biggest changes that happened. The horsepower's ramped up, went from four cylinders to six cylinders. So there's a lot of really interesting things going on. And that's what um, that's what really got me um, to know about the IAC and to see that it was something, And uh, but still not approachable to me because of my budget at the time. But I knew what it was then. And I, I started meeting people through my RC connections over the years who had um, IAC background, including uh, Matt Chapman, who's an airshow pilot, or was, he retired. But at the time, I knew him as a modeler. And some other people as well that I, that I, you know, met. And so it never really totally left me from that experience in the early to mid nineties, didn't really leave me, but it just wasn't something I could do until I finally found myself in, you know, 2005, 2006 and realized, Hey, you know, I could just go do this. And that has been 15 years ago, I guess that I, that I got into it, um, as an actual pilot, I had my license. Um, I think I got it in 87, uh, so I've been 16 or 17. Um, I had my license, but just didn't really use it for fun until i got into aerobatics and that's when i realized that oh airplanes are fun really fun
2: yeah it's interesting how people get into aerobatics uh, and they come from all different uh you know directions like you know we had um uh we had patty wagstaff on the um on the podcast uh, a year or two ago and uh, she was you know got into aviation after she was involved in a uh, plane crash uh, and decided that uh she could uh you know do it better than the guy who was flying, uh, and and there's a, there's a number of other ways uh, you know that, that people come to it. But one thing that I um I've thought a lot about um, competition aerobatics is that there are some you know we've got problems all all across aviation with uh, with you know trying to lower the barriers to entry. That's a big challenge that we're all trying to uh, trying to address. And um, you know, competition aerobatics has some ra- rather unique barriers. You know, as far as you you. you if you want to fly the airplane, first you have to be a pilot, then you have to have an aerobatic training, and then you have to have access to an airplane that you can use for competition. Um, as you take over as president, what are your thoughts for, um, for for getting more people into the sport?
0: Such a great question. I, I look at my mission in the IAC as to um, to demythologize and to, um, to demonstrate and to prove the accessibility of the sport to people because I think there's a little bit of um, – of damage we've done to ourselves uh, through the media or just their own own speech about how it takes a certain sort of person to fly aerobatics. It's not really true. Anyone can do it. It does take training and good equipment. That's what you need. And training can be hard to find sometimes. So there's some challenges there. But I've worked with a lot of people, and they all, pretty much everybody, if they stick with it, they get to be proficient at aerobatics. It's um, it's it is fun. You know, the other thing <laughs> that people, it's it can be so much work. And it can be so hard to learn if you don't have good training that I think it's very discouraging. But if you find good training, if you find someone who can make it easy for you, then it's approachable and, um, and people can, be get, can get very proficient and safe very quickly. And I've seen so many times where somebody uh, uh, believes that something is impossible, completely impossible to do in an airplane for them, and then one week later has mastered it. It doesn't take as much time as people think to become proficient at basic aerobatics. Now, to do what I do or what the people on the unlimited team do, that's takes that takes years of effort. It can be almost a full-time job to, to fly at the highest levels. But to share the joy of aerobatics with people, it doesn't take that much investment. It does take good equipment and training and that's really my mission just let people know that it's uh, that it's something they can do if they, if they choose to. And I'll tell you that it's not as present in the as, as a lot of aviation is. this this endeavor is not as present in the media as it was when I was a child. It's not as obvious that you can participate in it as it used to be. but when we show it to people, when we give them a taste of it, they love it. So there's nothing different about people now than before. There's no reason they can't get excited about it and find a passion for it and invest their time you know, well and their money well in this great thing that we do. But we have to show it to them. We have to make them believe they can do it.
2: Yeah, definitely. I, I think, um, you know, another uh, very good example of somebody who got into uh, aerobatics to kind of uh, conquer a fear was uh, Sean Tucker, who um, who did it. Uh, you know, he told us he uh, he got into it so he could get over his air sickness. And, you know, I, I think, um, uh, you know, I've, I've had one aerobatic lesson and I loved it. And uh, it's certainly something I'd like to follow up on. When you talk about the equipment, uh, is there are there any opportunities to maybe, um, I don't know, expand the envelope a little bit of, of, uh, of what could be used? You know, there's, there's a large number of aircraft that are out there in the fleet, like RVs that are uh, certain models of RVs anyway, that are, you know, capable of, uh, of basic aerobatics, certainly not to the level of like a pits or something like that, uh, but could definitely um, allow more people to access the sport. Is that something that you guys are looking at?
0: We have a category system that allows people to participate um, in really any kind of aircraft you can imagine. An RV is perfectly capable of participating in the, at least the two lowest categories and probably the middle category as well. We have what we call primary and sportsman, which are really designed for aircraft without even inverted systems. So they're those are pretty um, basic, uh, um, you know, pretty basic category. It's still hard because flying aerobatics is hard and we're not going to be able to, to fix that. It's... It's not just about being able to do a loop in competition. You have to do a round loop and that just takes practice no matter how you slice it. Sure. But it's not hard um, to find an aircraft that can do a loop. Well, any aircraft that's capable of aerobatics can do a loop and a roll. and the kinds of things you do in the primary and sportsman categories are well suited for really any aerobatic aircraft out there, including um, a clip wing cub, for example. So surely anyone in an RV should be able to succeed in the, in those Two early categories those two lower categories of competition when you move to intermediate we get a little more restrictive uh, But our RVs have competed intermediate successfully. So that gives you the bottom three categories We have two more categories that would be very very hard to, to safely fly an RV I wouldn't recommend it and those categories are for people who are much more serious about aerobatics and usually have special built airplanes That's where the Pitts biplane comes in handy on the sure. low end the budget end and then you get to the aircraft like my extra compete in those. But we have three solid categories that are there for people who fly RV aircraft. And absolutely, we'd love to see people like that out there. It, we, one thing I'll tell you about the IAC and competitions is it's um, it's not as, um, you know, as adrenaline and testosterone uh, fueled as people probably think it is. It's usually a very relaxed time. People have a good time at these things. We are there to support each other, especially if you're new, or at least we should be. You know, if someone isn't, I want to hear about that because we should be inviting new people. And I think we do. So if you are at all interested, you could do what I did, which is show up and just uh, introduce yourself and maybe bring your airplane. Maybe don't, but just uh, have a good time hanging out with everybody, go to the banquet and enjoy yourself. And maybe competition is not your thing, in which case we have an achievement award program. We have opportunities for education about safety. We can direct you to someone who can train you. What we want is for you to be safe and to be proficient and to be able to fly your airplane precisely. That's the mission of the IAC.
1: That's terrific now, you you talked about sort of just you know showing up at a competition or getting you know reaching out connecting with iAC um, what do you tell that new new person what's their first step? Somebody comes to you and says okay i'm a uh, you know I'm a three hundred hour uh, private pilot flying you know one seventy twos and Cherokees and that kind of thing. This aerobatic thing really looks like fun um, I, I I suspect the first thing you're going to tell me to do if I'm interested in aerobatics is go find training, but really what's high?" How do I go about doing that? And, and what is that first piece of advice you have?
0: So if it's someone near to me, then I have a lot of opportunity because I can tell them exactly where to go for training. I know the people. But if they're distant, then what I'd usually recommend is they go, they begin by going to their chapter, their IAC chapter, and talk to the people there and get advice on who to train with. It, it's important you get very good training. Uh, I, I, I sort of think that in a lot of ways, aerobatics is not quite as dangerous as we make it out to be because we sort of use the danger We kind of amplify it to make ourselves look really, really capable. So I kind of want to demythologize some of that. But regardless, you need, you must have really good training so you can uh, uh, take care of yourself if you enter a spin inadvertently or get yourself confused. That just takes training, no way around it. I recommend people do that for at least a week with a good school to get the basics sorted out so that they can um, recover from anything that happens and their panic will not set in. The biggest barrier people have when they're starting is really the fear, the adrenaline, the, the possibility of panic, the 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 you know the, the potential that your muscles won't respond the way they, they normally would. And that just takes a, uh, some flights with someone who's confident and can tell you where you are. And once you get over that hump, a lot of what you learn in aerobatics can be done on your own at a safe altitude. So we just try and get people to that point where they can get on their own safely and explore. And that's the joy of aerobatics. When you can get in an airplane and take off, get to a safe altitude – and just start exploring what the airplane can do. That is so fun that we want to get people there. Once they're there, the next step is to give them coaching from the ground. And that's where someone like me comes in where I I feel like I can help people the best. I don't don't try to get in the airplane with them. I try to stay on the ground on a radio and talk them through what they're doing and tell them how it looks and give them a briefing and post-briefing so they can make the most out of their flights. And there's opportunities for that all over the IAC. We all do that with each other. And, And once you've done that for... Um, a few weeks, you can be flying in a competition and do very well in competition with other people who are beginning. We have, uh, you know, a crop of new people every year who are in the same boat as you. If you work together with somebody, a little bit of a buddy system, you'll come a long way in a very short period of time. We had um, my girlfriend is a great example. Marianne has uh, has she received her pilot's license um, less than a year ago. She has about a hundred hours and she flew her first competition um, a couple weekends ago after flying with me for maybe a week. And I was with her in the airplane during the competition to make sure she was safe as a, what we call a safety pilot. But she flew and did very, very well in her first competition, and she's hooked. So it's possible to go from, you know, from no experience to uh, a capable aerobatic pilot in a week or two with the right training.
1: Wow, that's, that's amazing. It, it seems like something. And uh, as you said earlier, of course, when you get up toward the unlimited category and you're, you're talking about... Something very different that takes years, but, uh, but I would never have guessed that somebody could go, uh, go into competition in that sort of a time. What, uh, what airplane were you, uh, were you two flying, or was she flying when you were the safety yeah, pilot?
0: Yeah, she, she was flying at Decathlon, and I want to be clear, she had no interest in this stuff like a month ago. So it's been really fun to me. All of a sudden, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe we should go fly some aerobatics. Okay, sure, why not? I've never pushed her on it. Um, and we just, we got on the airplane, did some loops and rolls and she said, well, that's not so bad. I think I could do that. So I let her take the sticks and uh, take the stick and do that a couple times. And then she said, well, could we fly through the primary sequence? Well, sure. The primary sequence is a climb at 45 degrees followed by a spin followed by what we call a half Cuban, which is a, a maneuver that turns you around, changes your direction, then a loop and then a turn, then a roll. So it's not very many figures. And most of those are just kind of flying the airplane. So we focused on the spin, that half Cuban the loop and the roll in isolation. And then we started thinking, let's, I thought she was doing really well and I thought, well, let's see if we can put it together in a sequence. And, um, I would not have um, let her go take the airplane off and fly. I would not have wanted her to fly it by herself, but we got to where it was pretty clear she could fly that one sequence through safely. And that's really all you have to do. No one expects you to come to the first contest to be the best pilot in the world. And that it takes time. It just takes a lot of time. There's no shortcuts. So you have to put in the time. But to get to the first contest and be competent, if you can get good training and a safety pilot who can help you out, there's no reason you can't approach that in a couple of weeks.
1: That's really remarkable. Uh, Now, Jim, you've also been involved in addition to uh, competing sort of stateside and and your involvement directly with now the leadership of IAC. You've been involved with the U.S. aerobatic team. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, the, the IAC has many missions. One of the missions is to field teams for world competition, Uh, There's several different ways you can compete at the world level. You can compete in uh, what we call power or you can compete in glider, sailplane competition. And you can compete um, in special, they have some special categories like the Yak 52 has its own category. But then we also have the category system that's based on difficulty like we have in the U.S. They have um, a world championship for the unlimited category. They also have one for the advanced category and one for the intermediate category now as well. And I've competed on the unlimited team, which is the highest category so what we do is every every two years we have a world championship we alternate uh, advanced and unlimited and every two years in alternating years we pick a team we take the top eight scores at the nationals and we uh, pat them on the head and tell them thank you and then send them off to the worlds and really the teams pretty much are responsible for themselves once we've selected them Uh, i've been on two unlimited teams one in uh, 2017 in south africa and then last year 2019 uh, in Châteauroux. France, And it, both times an amazing experience uh, so much camaraderie and closeness with my teammates uh, such a great time training with them So much information gained that I, you would never be able to get in a, any other setting and then the um, the the Warmth with which the international community accepts us and, and, and the way they treat us when we go to these events These are big deals when we go to when we went to Chateauroux It was um, way more like a rock concert than I could ever have expected. It was um, it's a real um, a serious motorsport in Europe particularly in France we had a parade to the, the streets of Châteauroux we had a, a flyby by the Petru de france which is basically their thunderbirds wow. they had a tightrope walker and bands and um, 100,000 people sitting you know standing out there at the air show that we did and I mean, it was just a nonstop festival atmosphere so much um, it's like sort of like a mini air venture you know, and it, and we were the stars. So it, the experience is just unbelievable. I mean, even even where they had people holding signs of their favorite pilots, they follow the sport there in a way that we don't in the U.S. So it was a very eye-opening thing. Another thing I got out of that in France was their um, their flying club system, which makes aerobatic aircraft in particular very accessible to people because they join together in clubs with you know 100 or 200 people, paying a very reasonable fee every month, even though they're dealing with tremendous regulations. Burden, you know, burdensome regulations, very high fuel costs, um, you know, difficult insurance picture, airspace all over the place. They still manage to field a, a, a winning team pretty much every year at the worlds. The French are the ones to beat, and uh, but they do that by having a very strong club system where they support each other and they have uh, plane sharing. We can learn so much from that here.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I it's it's interesting because we always. Um... You know, especially those of us in the regulatory world, you know, we we um, Europe and its regulations are kind of our boogeyman. You know, as far as uh, uh, you know, as as far as what we don't want to have happen here, um, you know, and I think it is a really real real fear of uh, you know what what could happen if um, if the regs really start to run away from us. But um, the flip side of that is that the flying club system that's kind of necessarily come out of that. Is a really great and supportive way to do aviation. That um, you know, I wish we had more of here, and that that's really neat. It's also really neat that you guys, um, you know, have the kinds of fans uh, overseas that um, you know, like um, uh, th- these kinds of you know, kind of niche sports. You know, I I, I, I sail competitively, and uh, it's kind of the same thing over in France. I mean, they're just crazy about you know offshore sailing and mm-hmm. stuff like that over there, and uh, it's 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 neat to see. Um, Kind of an interesting, just a, a curiosity. But how do the logistics of that work? I know in years past, um, the the uh, the Air Force has supported uh, the U.S. Aerobatic Team actually flying the planes over in a C five. Did they still do that, or how do you ship your airplanes? How do you do that?
0: No, no, uh, sadly, no. I wish that would be the case. Uh, all the team members, um, there used to be some some level of support that the team would receive, and I think there's probably still some. Um, maybe suspicion that the team consumes a lot of re- resources, but the, I'll just tell everybody the truth is that the team takes care of itself. I think uh, we did get a little bit of donation money come, came in that it, you know was uh, somewhere at or under maybe a thousand dollars a person. Um, so there was some donation money that came in, which is grateful. we were grateful for, but um, the majority of the expenses, which would be at least $50,000 a person, let's just say, every team member puts that money forward on their own. And for some of us, it was more. Um, we all had to get airplanes over there somehow That means taking them apart and putting them in a container and putting them on an airplane or a ship and getting them over there And if you put on a boat, then it's gonna take months to get your airplane If you put it on an airplane, it's gonna cost five times as much, but you'll have it right away So there's just not a lot of really great options except to you know to, to ship it or you could try and rent an airplane lease an airplane Overseas which can work, but then you're sharing an airplane with a bunch of people and that's a challenge um, No matter how good your your friends are your partners are it's a lot better to fly your own airplane. So the, that's what we're faced with: is a based on our own budgets, our own pocketbooks, we decide how we can afford to attend the worlds. And I'll be frank; it, it really affects our our ability to to win. We haven't won in over 30 years. And and then and I'll and we're not. It's because we're not the best pilots in general. But I mean, honestly, they're better pilots. They're they're beating us because um, they're stronger pilots than we are. Their systems produce better pilots than our system. But um, one of the factors in our system is that we are um, you know, funding everything out of our own pocketbook and trying to get airplanes overseas. And for the most part, the people in Europe are not having to take that extra expense on. So we're kind of selecting out a lot of people who could be really talented pilots, but just don't have the money. That's a, it's an economic problem we have to solve at some point.
2: Sure. Uh, Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's definitely a, a logistical problem that's, um, yeah, obviously less for some of the European countries and maybe unique to, uh, maybe unique to us, at least when we have to go over there. Um, what are some of the uh, strongest countries right now in um, in, in world competition? Yeah,
0: the, the, the strongest country by far is France. Uh, Russia is also very strong, and the U.S. is strong. The three these three countries are strong and have been strong throughout the history of the sport of aerobatics. Uh, but um, we just haven't. We and we we are a solid contender for second place, uh, of course, every time. But we haven't won at all in a long time. And I always think to myself, well, what would happen to the sport of aerobatics in the U.S. if the team brought home a gold medal. I think it would be a really good shot in the arm for everybody who flies aerobatics in the US. And I, I, I hope that happens. I'd love to see it happen. I, I think it's possible. It's completely doable. But our approach has to change. And we have to learn a little bit from what they're doing overseas. And we have to kind of get rid of some of our thinking that we're, um, that we're not being treated fairly. We're just in a system of competition like they are. And their system is working better. And we have to adjust our system to take advantage of the things they're, that they're really teaching us by winning. And, I, and it's completely possible if we take the right approach.
1: You know, h- historically, at least sort of the, the conventional wisdom has that uh, uh, at the time that the Soviet government, of course, the now largely Russia, but the Soviet government was uh, took a strong interest in in seeing East Bloc uh, aircraft and pilots do well in competition. So kind of a two part question. Is that is that true? Was there a lot of uh st- Soviet, and then maybe later Russian involvement uh, at the government level, the state level in those competitions? And is that still the, the case today? And then and then what about France? Are they are they supported at that level?
0: Yeah, those are great questions. Uh, you're right about that. The, the Way back in the day, uh, the, the Russian team was a state-sponsored team. The U.S. team was effectively a state-sponsored team as well because they we shipped the airplanes. That's pretty good state sponsorship. <laughs> and the French team has always and continues to have money coming into its flying club system from the government in some way. Um, but the Russians haven't had that advantage for a long time and they're, but they still have good pilots that grew up in that system. So we can still credit that system to some extent with some of the success they have, though they're no longer getting that, that benefit. As I understand, I've talked to them and they said, no, no, we don't have that kind of advantage. The, they're, they're just simply, uh, they have a really strong tradition and they train well. Now, they field a smaller team than we do, but they feel a very, feel, still field a very strong team. When it comes to France, they get some uh, money to help them uh, and that they get to use airplanes for free. They also get their coaching taken care of, which is a, a large expense the U.S. has to pay for. So they get that taken care of. But, but more than that, what they have is a very strong tradition and a really um, deep knowledge of how to fly aerobatics. They know the exact airspeed they should hit all the figures at. They know what it should look like. And if you watch them fly, you can watch eight people on that team fly a sequence and look very, very much like the same it's the exact same presentation from all eight of them. They know what it's supposed to be like. And um, and really, they are um, they have such a deep field of strong pilots that it's not, a, it's not a struggle for them to come up with eight people who are ready to fly at that level. They might have 30 people to choose from. Whereas in the US, when we go to our nationals, we might only have eight people try out for a slot on an eight-person team. We just don't have as many people to, to choose from. So, and, and the people who are um, competing, like myself, we kind of have to take it on our own to learn how to fly at that level. They have a history, a tradition, because they've won so much now. They have a lot of inertia, and they take advantage of that. So it's a combination, and you, you, it's everything's economic in the end. All problems are economic, maybe. <laughs> and um, and maybe with the right application of money, we can build that tradition, and we can, we can um, get that understanding, and we can get more people excited about it. Um, it is an economic problem. But it's also a training problem. It's how we train, and it's how we fly our airplanes, what we expect. And um, how we prepare ourselves, how our 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 activities in the U.S., how our competitions in the U.S. prepare us to fly at the Worlds. And I'll I'll just continue. I hope I'm not getting boring. Some rambling, but um, there's also um, in the U.S. we have to make different decisions because we have an older fleet. We have people who are much more casual about the sport. We have to take care of them too. We we have limited time to to discuss all these things and plan all these things. And there's a there's a feeling that anything we do to take care of the teams is going to take away from everybody on the low end. So we have to balance that out too. We're taking care of everybody at the same time. Whereas in in the, in France, it's, it's, there's, there's no, um, there's no apology made for taking, making sure the team is successful. It's very important to everybody up and down the chain that the team is successful. So it's a different mindset. That's not a judgment call, by the way, on different ways of looking at it. It's just that one is going to produce, be more able to produce winners at the world level. That's, that's
1: really interesting. Do you think, um, use the word uh, use the word casual and and to me that that that's maybe a hint that uh, our world of aerobatics all uh, as a whole here in the US um, as opposed to strictly that top level world competition but just aerobatics uh, aerobatics in general uh, when you say casual is that maybe another way of, of saying that it's more accessible here than it would be say in France?
0: Yeah, I think that the yeah, so the the it's so different. It's you're you're asking questions that are really big questions because um, in the U.S. it's much more common to have your own airplane. That's kind of a fundamental aspect of our culture, and it's also very common to to maintain airplanes that were home built and that are. Uh, I'll use the word aging. That doesn't mean they're bad airplanes, but they're older airplanes. They're not newer airplanes. Whereas in Europe, the idea would be more that you have newer airplanes that are maintained by a group. The maintenance is handled you show up to fly the airplane and you don't worry about the details here. It's more like the owner pilot idea. And that just makes a difference in what kind of, um, um, aerobatic competition, you know, people engage in because we have people who have great lakes and they have, um, Satabrias and they have, um, you know, an, an RV, like you mentioned, or they have these other kinds of aircraft that are not like today's version of what are aerobatic aircraft. Um, so they, they are, and they should, they must be able to, we must support them. As they enjoy aerobatics in their aircraft, that's what we want to have. We want this to be accessible to everybody. So there's a little bit of um, like um, partitioning in a way of the aerobatic community with people who have because there's no money coming in from anywhere, not even really from air shows these days. Uh, there's, there's sort of um, this sort of crew of people who work on the high end stuff and buy the expensive airplanes, and there's uh, everybody else who's trying to get along and enjoy the sport, and maybe going to one or two contests a year and part of the culture. And um, as every right, every, just as much right to the, to the sport and to the services from the IEC as anyone else. Just two different, you uh, know, it's, it's unfair to say there's two different groups. People move between them. But that's sort of one way to look at it, I think.
1: I'll put you on the spot here. Would you, uh, sure. is it safe to say that, uh, that just American aerobatic pilots from that entry level person in that uh, in the decathlon or clipped cub uh, all the way up to the unlimited, um, do we at least have more fun? Than uh, than a system like they do
0: in France. Where- yeah, I think so. It's no fun. Unlimited, <laughs> I, I mean, I think unlimited's fun. I would say it's not for everybody. In fact, it's not for most people. It's not fun for most people. But I think it's a lot of fun. And advances is fun. But absolutely, if somebody wants to go have a, a great time and not take it seriously, there's there's room for them in that as well. And we have to have. We're always going to have way more people doing that than we are at the high end. And I'm not. Um, so I don't know how I've, how I've come across in this interview. But the IAC won't get anywhere if we pick either one, it's our mission. We have our missions. Our mission is to field a team that's competitive at the world level. Our mission is to bring aerobatics to everybody and make it accessible to everybody. These things are not things we pick from. This is how we do it, we do both. And what i have always trying to do is find a way to accomplish both of those things, not pick between one and the other, not to have two camps fighting, but to get everybody working together so we can have a world championship and get as many people involved in the sport as possible, doing whatever it is that makes them happy.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, you're speaking to problems that are um that, that are present across a lot of different sports, you know, that Americans like to compete in but are also, you know, worldwide sports where we just kind of aren't as as competitive globally. Like I'm thinking like uh, auto racing. You know, um autocross is more um uh, popular and accessible, I think, that it ever has been, you know, just show up in whatever car you have and go race yeah. on a course. Um, but, you know, when was the last time, uh, you know, an American was was a truly elite, you know, F1 driver or something like that? You know, we just don't have the pipeline that a lot of other countries do. But, you know, motorsport is very popular in the U.S. overall.
0: Uh, Autocross is a great example of a, of a really intelligently designed category system that segregates people so that they're competing against like classes. And they're not—they're uh, not stymied. They don't feel like they're in an unfair situation. In aerobatics, we just—we probably have some work to do to to restore that feeling where people can show up at the contest and feel like they're, um, uh, like they have a fair shake against a better aircraft. It's a tough nut to crack because we have a limited amount of time and volunteer resources to spend at our contest. But I do think autocross is a really good template for how it can be done well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, shifting gears just a little bit, I know we're kind of coming down to the end of the interview here, but I, um, we've asked a lot of uh, aerobatic pilots kind of the same question and the answers are always kind of interesting. So I just wanted to ask you, um, when you're talking about the difference between competition aerobatics and air show performance, um, Mm -hmm. how do you take the, how do you design a compelling air show act? How do you take the concepts that you learn and perfect in competition and bring that into something that's entertaining for a crowd?
0: So when we do air shows, they're usually not flying what we, the way we think about in competition. In the competition, we're flying very, very, um, you know, we're trying to fly perfect lines, perfect loops, and those things are not actually safe to do near the ground. In general, we try not to fly perfect perfection. Um, if you're on a 45-degree line, head a downward and you roll to inverted 45, you don't really have a view of the horizon anymore. So we try and fly those lines a little bit shallower in, in, uh, in air shows. But we do have what we call the four-minute freestyle, which I really enjoy. And that's a chance to do airshow style things in competition. It's something I, I I love to do, and that's where I learned a lot of what I what I know about flying air shows. And the, the trick to putting together a great air show performance is really to make sure your energy management is done is handled perfectly, so you can lose the en- engine at any point during your performance and and be safe. You it, that can't be you can't have a a sequence together that you can do a hundred times in a row. It has to be a million times in a row successfully, no matter what happens. Because the, the the life of the, the um, you know, the safety of the crowd is the most important thing. And uh, any, anything to put yourself in a dangerous situation would put the crowd in a dangerous situation. So we can't allow that. But once the sequence is safe, the next thing is kind of to take off, do everything you know how to do one time and land. And try and do that all in, in 10 minutes or less. And, you know, don't bore people, I think would be the number two thing, right? <laughs> keep them safe and keep them excited about what you're doing. And, if, and it, I think I've done some shows I thought were, the, I, they only gave me like eight minutes. Like the time got compressed. Probably some of the better shows I've done. I've done some shows. I say, Hey, can you fill in 15 minutes? Well, no, I can't because you know, I mean, I could do the same show twice, <laughs> but I've already done by by 12 minutes. I've kind of done all the things I really feel like I want to do in front of everybody. There, then I, I'm worried I would start playing around with things I think I could do, but that's not a good idea or doing things I already did, which is kind of boring. And uh, of course I'll do what the show organizers need. I'll I'll, try and take care of them. But you, you know, you, there's a, something to be said for uh, less is more and leaving people wanting a little bit in an air show act you have to have a, a large um, palette to draw from. You have to be able to do kind of anything and then pick your best things and put them in the best presentation you can in front of people. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of uh, what I think about with it. And I'll, I'll tell you that, um, the air show industry is not what it was at one time. There's a lot of people that, um, that want to fly air shows, the best way to get into it, the best way, if you want to make your mark in air shows by far, is to start in competition and prove yourself, get good, get really good. So when you go to fly your air shows, you can show a difference. You can be, you can show that you're really able to do things with precision. And most people that go to the air shows, they kind of flop around, but you can show that you can fly things correctly the same way. Every time you can make a nice presentation, that's safe. You'll get a lot farther in the air show industry than you would otherwise. So that's my recommendation.
2: Yeah, uh, that's a really good answer. I, I, um, uh, like I said, it's uh, it's interesting how that how those kind of those two wor- two distinct worlds of aerobatics kind of interact with each other, um, and uh, and yeah, my my absolute favorite uh, performances um, are the are, are the precision ones, you know, versus the ones that kind of uh, I don't know amp up the excitement and danger, you know, and uh, and, and stuff like that.
0: Well, I call it flippy flues. Uh, that's my <laughs> word for it when I see an airship performer. They come in, they dive in really fast, the smoke comes on, they go straight up, they do a flippy flu. they come down, they go back up, do a flippy flu. A flippy flu is to me just when you just kind of put the controls in the corner and wait. And you can really tell the difference between somebody who's practiced a a tumble and knows how to stop it on a heading at a certain angle and come out and enter the next figure with the right amount of airspeed to to present it well in the center so people can see it. Uh, and, And I, of course, we need people doing flippy flus too. I don't mean to be mean to anybody, but, uh, but you know, there, there's just a difference. You can see the difference when someone's uh, practiced.
1: Yeah. I, I'm kind of with Tom. What I enjoy seeing personally is, uh, is anything where the, the concepts of energy management and precision are the things that are sort of at the forefront. And I, uh, I always have a personal, uh, p- slight personal preference toward maybe heavier airplanes and uh, you know, bigger some slower more graceful maneuvers but but knowing that that pilot is is so perfectly in tune with the machine and how to how to get something out of it that uh, that that maybe that airplane wasn't even really uh, not necessarily not designed to do but wasn't really uh, at the forefront of its design
0: yeah so somebody who can maximize the performance of the airplane and I think a combination of very very dynamic fast flying and then some slow flying uh, controllability in all aspects of the aircraft's Uh, you know, flight is I think what makes it beautiful and makes it uh, exciting. And you have to change things up.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, Jim, we are getting, uh, we are getting a bit long, but uh, there is one other thing I wanted you to talk about, even if it's just very briefly. And that's something that you and I sort of almost have in common. We, uh, it, in my last career, uh, as I, I think you and I had an email exchange about this, I was uh, uh, heavily involved at Microsoft with the Flight Simulation series and uh, you're in the simulation business too, and in fact, I used to demo your products to my colleagues uh, to to uh, complain about all the things we wanted to steal from you and yeah, yeah. Uh, we never really, uh, we never really did but could you talk about uh, just a little bit about uh, your uh, your work in the simulator world?
0: Sure. Well, we make a product called Real Flight and my company, Knife Edge Software. And Real Flight is a product that teaches people how to fly radio controlled airplanes and drones and helicopters on their computer. It comes with a transmitter, a USB cord is attached to that. They plug it into their computer and they can then fly the airplanes or whatever on their uh, flight sim. And the nice thing is, it has a reset button. So if they crash, instead of spending months and hundreds of dollars, <laughs> they just push that reset button and they're back in the air again. So it's a very popular product. Um, it's been around since 1996. And, um, as you know, extremely popular, um, it has, I think, uh, uh, to me, the most sophisticated flight model in the world for aerobatic flying, um, which has been created at really great expense, um, over the years because model airplanes for a long time, have been able to do things that other airplanes can't do like hover. So we had to solve a lot of problems with that, you know, 15 years ago and been working on it for a long time to perfect it. Um, and I and I know Microsoft Flight Simulator I think it has a I know they have a new version out I haven't even looked at it. I don't know what status it's in if it's released yet or anything but I'm curious to see how they do on the on the aerobatics because it's very hard to make a good aerobatic flight simulator it's easy to say this plane can fly it flies at the correct you know it cruises at the correct airspeed it climbs at the right, right rate but when you start getting the airflow doing all the funny things that it does during aerobatics there really isn't a, a research out there that you can rely on and you can't really make a you know a real time computational fluid dynamics flight model it's not going to work so you have to rely on heuristics that we've developed over a couple decades now and uh, been successful with at this point we can take a model airplane flight sim and we can just kind of reduce it down to the numbers this is the airfoil this is the wingspan here's where everything is here's the mass of everything and our flight model predicts pretty well how it's going to fly
1: i always held it up as uh, i mean, you know Kidding aside about talking about what we were going to steal, but uh, but part yeah. of my job was to do sort of quasi competitive analysis, and we were serving two different markets. But um, but you know the stall and spin modeling in particular in real flight has always been been worlds beyond. Yeah, you mentioned the new uh, Microsoft Flight Summit. As we're recording this, it did it was uh, released just a couple of days ago, uh, and it's out there. Uh-huh. And I've had a chance to to use preview builds of that for for several months, and uh, uh, it's come a long way. Uh, since uh, so 14 years ago was the last release. Uh, last release I worked on, but I have to say, at the risk of just sounding uh, like a suck up, um, or or maybe uh, you know, let me, let me ask you this: How do you like the sound of the green dots sponsored by Real Flight? Um, yeah. <laughs> just just putting that out there. Yeah, but I do have to say that I, I've 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 been on record as saying I think Real Flight, when you're holding that transmitter, you know, it's or or even plugging in your own real transmitter quote unquote, uh, you're only a transmitter, you're looking at the screen. It's one of the most uh, one of the most perfect simulation experiences I think you can have because it's it is it is as close to what you are simulating, holding the transmitter in your hand, moving those controls. You know, you're looking at a, at a screen and your eyes are following following the model. And uh, it's uh, it, it's. Almost deceptively, uh, deceptively good. I don't think people realize how much you could learn flying RC models by sitting in front of that. And it's, and you know, things that we were trying to do back in my previous life with multiple monitors and yokes and rudder pedals and stuff like that. We could start to get fairly close, but but I always held real flight up. Said, look, this is. Th- this is a, a perfect uh, a perfect recreation of the experience you guys are trying to deliver. So it's it's nice to talk to you and and just sort of oh, yeah, uh, give great. you a, give you a tip of the hat after all this time.
0: Yeah, I appreciate. It. You should uh, call your friends at Microsoft and tell them to license our uh, technology. <laughs> and, uh, give them my contact. But you know, it's I, I'll just close on. I know we got to go. But um, one of things that's most fun for me about that was we had a moment when we made the the, the reset button and the simulator all getting together and and we were taking it around and showing it to um, the, the newest version. You know. And we had all this debate on, well, what should we do when the software starts up? What should it do? What should it tell people? Because the way it worked in the, you know, in the beta stage was the airplane just spawned. It just uh, appeared in front of you. And if you had the throttle up in the transmitter, just fly from the distance and it would just start responding to controls and everybody would just crash because they didn't know what they were doing. The software didn't help them. But what was fun is to watch people. And I enjoyed watching people figure out the reset button and push it and reset and fly and fly and crash and crash and crash. And during testing, we found that everybody uh, within four or five or six flights learned from just the experience of messing up and breaking and had so much fun eventually just crashing the airplane and watching the pieces fly that uh, we've left it like that ever since. It just is something that it's a, it's a sandbox, a perfect sandbox. You get the software and if you crash, you just crash, but you just reset and continue. It's a great way to learn. So thank you for your kind words.
1: Well, it's uh, it's quite sincere and, and, I I've always appreciated you guys kept that kept that purity in place mm-hmm. as you know, you fire it up. What do you want to do? Well, obviously you want to fly this model. So just get in yeah. and go. And you're not, your user interface isn't in the way you don't have, you know, you're not going to make me watch 45 minutes of sort of video tutorials or things right. before you let me just get hands on and try it.
0: Yeah. No unlocks. We don't, we don't make you unlock things. You just right. go and fly. That's the, that's the premise. It's your simulator. Those are your airplanes, your helicopters, go fly them and crash them or, we give you options of games, but we don't make you fly those if you don't want to. You can just do whatever you want. Right. It's a different approach, isn't it? It is.
1: It is. It's something that uh, uh, th- that we tried at Microsoft, on and off. And I, and I I think our best versions were when we when we got closer to that model, but that's just my uh, my opinion. But anyway, speaking of going and flying, uh, here we are at the end of uh, of another episode, Jim. I can't thank you enough for taking so much time uh, with us today, a little bit of extra time, and uh, apologies to your significant other. I know you asked us up front how long yeah. it would be, and and I lied.
0: She wants to go flying.
1: <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, uh, well, good for her, um, and and see that she does. <laughs> So with that, uh, thanks again, Jim. It's great to talk to you. Uh, look forward to, uh, hopefully some future contributions to sport aviation magazine. You and I have collaborated there before and, uh, Thanks to all everybody out there. Thanks to uh, everyone who takes the time to leave us a review over on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts. Uh, a lot of you post comments on the EA hangar flying blog at and inspire.ea.org, And each episode has a home there and kind of a landing page. And uh, you can send us feedback as many of you do to, wonder of wonders feedback at ea.org that also gets to us but we really appreciate it uh, without the kind words without the positive reviews the great ratings uh, we wouldn't be able to continue this so thanks as always to everybody out there for listening and we'll catch up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot